Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. As a culture, we are obsessed with penises. Our society often associates the phallus with social power and worth, and the pervasive focus on the phallus has a greater and potentially more negative impact on a plethora of issues, such as the self-worth of women and men and gender equality than many realize. Today, I'm talking to an expert on all things penis. Emily Willingham is the author of Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis, Her writing has also been published in the New York Times, Scientific American, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and many others. She has a PhD in biological sciences and a BA in English literature, both from the University of Texas at Austin. In Fallacy, Emily Willingham explores animal genitalia while also delving into the social and cultural significance of penises as symbols of power and identity. She challenges the notion that the penis makes the man and the fallacy sold to many of us that the penis signals dominance and power. In short, Emily Willingham thinks it's time to put the human penis into perspective for the sake of all humanity. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Emily, it is such a pleasure to welcome you on the Superhumanized podcast today. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me, Ariana. I appreciate it. You know, the first question, of course, that comes to mind is what inspired you to write a book about penises? I was originally working on my book proposal for the book I'm currently completing about the brain. And in the process of it, after going through a few iterations of proposals, I realized, you know, I actually have a PhD kind of in gonads and I did postdoctoral research in penises. And I wonder if anybody's ever done a book about those and looked at the vast array and variety of them. And not really, not specifically on that subject, I was glad to find. And that got the ball rolling, so to speak. Excellent. And I'm glad it did uh, because, you know, people really like talking about penises. Our culture is, as I mentioned in the intro, really kind of obsessed with penises, our genitalia, anything that's associated with reproduction, but we're particularly obsessed with the penis. You know, whether it's famous men texting pictures of their privates, and then it gets splashed out all over the news media, um, whether it's slang in, in pop culture, in, in songs and in movies, how it gets focused on. I mean, it's it's fair to say that penises have taken a rather outsized role in our culture. How did we become so penis-centric? What is the origins of that? And how does it influence our society, our sex, our science? Those are great big questions, and I do address them in the book, and I'll see if I can be succinct with them here. 
Um, I think it kind of started out as it did, at least in a lot of the world, started out as a protective thing. It was viewed as protective in terms of agriculture when we started staying in one place and trying to grow things because, you know, there are, as you point out, some pretty obvious associations with fertility. And then it got magnified from that um, into the phallus being protective of lots of other things. We, if you want to fast forward, for example, to today, or actually let's say fast forward to Freud and see what the associations, of course, that he tried to draw between penises and how we all wanted to be a phallus or eat phallus, all kinds of really weird things that he had to say about them. That kind of positioned it as this manifestation that deserved all kinds of attention. And I think that it's problematic for us as a species in a couple of ways. We have started to almost in a lot of ways replace men with penises and think that penises are what makes a man a man. And then that emphasis has narrowed us down to one expression of masculinity as well, which I think is also damaging. Right. And you mentioned something interesting with regards to agriculture when humanity moved into this agricultural stage of development. Um, there's uh, many different uh, scientists, anthropologists as well, that have mentioned that have emphasized that this moving towards an agricultural time really changed a lot for humanity, including, you know, when so much worth was placed on upper body strength um, or generally strength in order to uh, supply food for the tribe, where before that it was mainly the women via going out and, and being gatherers who provided the main amount of calories for the tribe. And with the um, advancement of agriculture, that shifted. So all of a sudden men became more, quote, important, uh, providing nutrition for the tribe. And with that, also the power shifted. So with that, um, you know, there's an anthropologist such as uh, Wednesday Martin, who also say that that's uh, really what... Um, put patriarchy in place or got it all started. I think there's definitely, and I mean, I'm certainly going to defer to the anthropologists on that because I'm definitely not one of those, but certainly in what I found when I was looking at the human cultural relevance is that with that need to kind of protect a plot of land and stake it as your own. Um, yes, I think, you know, cross reaction there with the, the sex that's associated with more physical strength and this recognizable body part that, you know, I mean, if you look at the gods that are associated with agriculture early on, like one of the earliest Egyptian gods is men who's M I N probably butchering that pronouncement pronunciation. Um, is depicted as holding a flail, which is used to harvest wheat, of course, but also with a phallus that is erect parallel to the ground. And his um, plant was a kind of lettuce, not like a head of lettuce, like we associate, you know, sometimes with lettuce, but more like romaine. And it was kind of phallus shaped. And it's a kind of lettuce that when you cut it open, it oozes a white fluid. So all of these things become very tangled, you know, pretty early on in terms of humans putting down like literal plant roots <laughs> and trying to stake their claim to plots of land. Right. And I think the Romans had, um, um, I don't know how you pronounce it in English, but we'd say in, in German, Priapus. Right. We, we would say Priapus, apparently, according to when I was doing the book, audio book <laughs> for Penguin, <laughs> we looked it up. Apparently it's Priapus. Um, yeah, exactly. As a scarecrow first, right? 
And then, of course, becoming far well, far better known for the priapic appearance <laughs> that he has. Yeah, priapism, which means uh, perpetual, having a perpetual erection. Which is terrible. It's a very unfortunate thing to happen to someone. So, yeah. Not desirable. Not desirable, no. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as the human penis goes, during your research, and of course you really delve into that in the book, but if you could give it to us in an overview, how does the human penis measure up to the rest of the animal kingdom? What are some examples of the most fascinating male organs you have encountered in the animal kingdom? That definitely plays into one of the life lessons, you know, the subtitle of the book. And that is, it depends on how you measure, but almost however you measure, we don't come out as spectacular. And that's good for us because the ones that emerge as spectacular are either quite enormous for the body size, like this barnacle that has a penis as many, many times its body size. The barnacle itself is very tiny. Um, and we wouldn't, you know, be able to function as a species if that were the case. Um, a pattern that emerges in the book is that the more bells and whistles a penis has, the less sort of boxes you check as you approach intimacy with a partner. And the fact that ours doesn't have these bells and whistles means that not only do we sort of go through a process of establish, establishing intimacy, but also when we do, we get to put it in more places and kind of have more fun with it than some of these sort of fancier iterations in the animal kingdom, like, for example, the bed bug, which is a stabby version, or the seed beetle, which looks like the business end of a prickly pear cactus and just really kind of has the one purpose that it serves. <laughs> so we, we come out on top in the sense that we do, I think, as far as I can tell, have the most fun <laughs> with them. Excellent. Maybe with the exception of bonobos, <laughs> That's true. But I was definitely enjoying themselves all around from what I can tell. And they're a really good example of kind of how we need to broaden what we perceive the these body parts is doing because that we always associate them with sex, right? But when I was associate them with just kind of social interactions and that kind of thing and in, in ways that go beyond sex and the purpose we attribute to sex. And so they're fascinating to me in that regard. And uh, from a purely um, anatomical standpoint and the capacity of what they can do, a bottlenose dolphins are also fascinating because their penises are multifunctional. Functional. In your book, I read that they actually are similar to hands, right? They, they can pivot them kind of, you know, like around almost like a three, like an owl's neck or something, you know, and yeah, they use them for all kinds of purposes. They goose each other with them. And that's also really a very kind of more social than sexual, if I could distinguish those two things. And I think it's interesting that we narrow down that body part to just the one purpose. And all, some of these other animals are using it for, you know, as a multi-use tool. Hmm. For example... Well, I mean, like, like, like bonobos or the dolphins. And then there are, um, well, there, the, for example, uh, an octopus that I wrote about, you know, it's an arm, <laughs> right? It's one of its eight arms, but then because the female is so much larger that she would, might make a snack out of the male, he kind of, you know, sneaks up there and drops the arm off inside of her and swims away minus an arm. So, you know, it's serving two purposes there, Right. And um, he loses it <laughs> as a result of that. Which, which, of course, that might be traumatizing to all the idea of that, to losing your penis might be traumatizing to a lot of listeners right now, um, because that's kind of what a lot of people with penises think 
could be the worst that would ever happen to them. So it's interesting to hear that in the animal kingdom, it's actually part of procreation and uh, survival of the species. It's definitely that. And there's some species, the penis actually isn't, um, that, or it either can make, they can make a replacement penis or it's got three little parts. So one part will break off and then the little backup part will be there for another copulation, you know? Yeah. But ours obviously isn't made that way. So to lose ours would, is traumatic, I think. And, and there are some, you know, some, some of the, the witchcraft material that they came across is based on this fear that, you know, witches will steal the penis. And there's a whole, whole, like, like side bar about penis trees and, and, and women collecting penises from trees and things like that. We're a really interesting species. Humans are. We are. I have read this lore about the penis trees and the witches stealing penises, which of course is symbolic of witches stealing the masculinity because we correlate the penis with masculinity so much. So it's really the fear of emasculation because witches of course are powerful beings, empowered a lot of times females who live life according to their own convictions instead of fitting into a certain narrative or paradigm um, that society tries to box them into. This is an interesting thing that I came across as well, is that in addition to the, you know, that, that that's the fear that's being manifested in this literature, right? Also that they use glamour they actually mm -hmm. call it glamour, right? Which is a way to sort of like cast a spell, a spell so that the the man can't see what's going on and she can fool him. And I thought that that, I think that's just a really interesting starting point for glamour and the dazzling connotations that it has that carry over to today. Yes. And glamour is also part of the, you know, fairy tales when they talk about, I think in uh, Ireland or in the UK, they call them the little people. Mm -hmm. uh, when they talk about so-called fairies, glamour is a big part of that. And that was also how human beings would be lured into these alternate worlds or universes. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Superhumanize. Talking about fascinating, you know, uh, penises have been such a long-standing subject of scientific fascination, and they're far more studied, or at least in the past decades, they've been far more studied than vaginas. And in your book, you also focus on how vaginas have been left out of scientific research um, in comparison to the studying of the penis. What is the reason behind that? The fundamental reason I infer is that it's because who has been asking the questions and deciding how those questions get answered. And the center chapter of the book is about vaginas. I centered the vaginas in my book about penises a little bit of a Trojan horse. And what I found, it was it was more striking than I even expected. The, the bias toward looking at penises over vaginas to the point of being ascientific. I don't, you, if you read the book, you know, or if you just are familiar with evolutionary biology and the way some of this works, that if there is a tension there where copulation happens, where the penis and the vagina meet, then you start to see more of those features on the penis, right? And um, that's just part of the pattern. It's like the more tension, kind of the less consent there is, the, the more the penis tends to have these features. Well, the thing is, is that those features are an adaptation to something. Thing to which they are adapting should be in the vagina somewhere. And so you'd expect to look there and find that and have this really interesting story about a call and response. And they just didn't look. 
explicitly so, right? They would say, we just don't think there's anything going on there in the vagina. Eh, it's just probably not worth looking at. I mean, you know, it's really kind of surprised at how explicit that was that they stated it just so clearly. Right. I mean, uh, to this day, it gets discussed, you know, why uh, females, why women have an orgasm and if it's even necessary for procreation. So there's so much wrapped around that discussion. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really is, is fascinating. And uh, what I really find interesting, too, is looking at this um, through the lens of our culture, especially popular culture, where you have a lot of females going out there and, you know, rap singers who really put it in your faces, whether it's in, in the music videos or on the album covers or whether they sing about it, uh, like Cardi B. It's, it's, we're moving into a different era. I feel like the vagina gets much more proudly owned and is not, you know, is, is, is not talked around anymore with polite words. I hope so. I would hope that it would be treated with as much interest and respect or even just fun as, as the penis does seem to get. So we'll see how it goes. You know, I see things happening in state houses all over the country that make me a little concerned about how the reproductive anatomy associated with, you know, making eggs and stuff is going to be treated. So kind of remains to be seen. I have a whole lot of hope for the generation coming up. These, a lot of young people are just like, yeah, <laughs> it's all good. Let's talk about all of it. So that's hopeful, I think. Absolutely. And also not putting a, a veil of taboo or, ooh, let's not talk about this, about um, something so wonderful and beautiful and necessary for human survival as, you know, the, the female cycle, the period. Things being natural and beautiful and not to be shamed. Yeah, did you see the, the most recent thing that guys who invented like with some kind of gloves or something for men to use? So, oh no, so you don't have to touch the menstrual products or something like that. It was actually in Germany, the equivalent to Shark Tank and it's called the Lion's Den. It was just big time in the news. So these guys came up with this product called Pinky Gloves. Yeah. And they actually, what, uh, what really boggles my mind is, okay, you have some some young men who come up with this product idea. That's one thing. But then you actually have a whole set of people who work on a production of a major TV show who think it's a great idea to put this to put this product, you know, um, on this pitch on TV and for the audience to explain. So it's these pink plastic gloves, pinky gloves that women would be uh, using to remove, uh, well, uh, well, the items that absorb their menstrual blood in order to avoid it looking or not good in the, in the, in the trash can or maybe odors developing and whatnot. So the outrage was directed at two things. First of all, for real, you're telling us to use more plastic, unsustainable products, and you're telling us that basically there's something shameful and dirty and nasty about the period. So it, it went bust in a huge way, and rightfully so. Yes, absolutely. That's just ridiculous. You've just got to check every once in a while, what year is it, you know? Right. <laughs> Right. So. Yes. And I mean, that should, that's something that also for, for young women who are just really at, you know, at the beginning of this journey from becoming 
you know, a, a young girl to becoming a woman, what kind of message, uh, all jest aside, does that send to them? You know, this is a time in their lives that should be celebrated and where they should be treated with respect and uh, not be afraid of getting shamed. I mean, there's still countries in this world where women will literally be separated uh, from the rest of the community and be put in separate, um, you know, houses, huts, while they're menstruating because it's viewed as something that is unclean. That you have to hide and that should be shamed. And that's, it's not confined only to that. I mean, that happens with, if another thing I found in looking at the subject of, of my book is that lots of things about women, if we aren't supposed to be hiding it and being and feeling shame about it, flip side of that is that we're being sneaky about things and trying to, you know, sneak, like be insidious in some way about our behaviors and what we're doing sexually is just, you cannot win. <laughs> you know, you just can't win. There's uh, some really wonderful books. I think this is what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some wonderful books that also have been educating us about female desire and uh, that the narrative that has been imposed on us is completely contradictory to how we actually biologically are wired. One in, in particular, I don't know if you've heard of it, um, it's called The Pleasure Gap by Catherine Rowland. Um, if you haven't, you should take a look at it because she digs into that in this really interesting way. I thought it was kind of eye-opening even as a middle-aged woman with a lot of just kind of, you know, self-possession about these things. I still found it really eye-opening. Mm, I have not read it yet. I heard about it. I'm glad you bring it up. I'll put yeah. it to read list. And I'll also put it in the show notes for resources for any of the right. audiences yeah. interested in it. Superhumanize. What I really love about your book is that Fallacy is, of course, a book that's based in science, bio biology. However, it's also steeped in psychology. You've mentioned Freud in um, sociology as well as sexual politics. So for the audience, can you sum it up? How do all these elements inform each other? I think we build up a lot of walls around this one feature that we've decided is associated with being male. Dismantling those is a job of work. And so we have done that psychologically, we've done that socioculturally. There are lots of roots to damage from having done that. We single out a single kind of masculinity, which is impossible to achieve by doing that. We conflate a man and a penis, and not all people with penises are men, and not all men have penises. And in the animal kingdom, you will find all kinds of different combinations of these things. There are animals in the out there that make eggs that also have penises. And there's a spectrum of these things. And so I think that what we need socioculturally and psychologically is a conscientious and intentional shift. It's not something that can just happen. I think we have to be intentional about it in terms of our language and how we talk and think about each other. And I think that's where the rubber is really going to hit the road in terms of seeing change. Yes, I think this is something really crucial that you said, the way we 
uh, think and also talk about genitalia and, and the whole context around them, it really has influenced so many aspects of us culturally, socially, things like gender equality. And we really need to shift the focus if we want to move towards true gender equality. And another thing uh, you've, you've just mentioned, you know, uh, animals actually making eggs, but also having a penis. Uh, the way we culturally discuss gender has dramatically changed recently, also due to the growing awareness um, around transgender individuals. Uh, many people who are on the more conservative spectrum with regards to this issue, they like to discuss it and make their arguments uh, based on an either or type, on a binary way of thinking. Biology doesn't really support that. It doesn't. Um, they, they think they're appealing to some kind of bi biological essentialist argument that nature constructs two sexes and that this is just the pattern all the time. And it's, it's just not the case. I do think, though, it's, it's a fine line. I think buying into debating that with them, though, elides something else, which is that we are the only representative of our genus. We are a species alone. We are sui generis and we are unique in a lot of ways including in our brains and the way we construct a world around us. And I don't know why we need to pin ourselves in terms of morals or ethics or behavior or any, or thinking or anything else to what other animals do anyway. So they're wrong on the biology. They're wrong on the biological essentialism front. And it also shouldn't actually matter because we have the most unconstrained behavioral expression of any species alive today. Um, towards the end of the book, you actually discuss the rise and the fall of the phallus. So the fall of the phallus, can you explain that to us? Yeah, I think it's the it's that point, the turning point, which we went from, you know, this is speaking of fascinating, right? So the fascinum was something that it was an amulet that they that like Roman children would wear in ancient Rome that was protective as a phallus with wings, you know, and so it had this kind of positive um, associations with, you know, protecting a field or protecting children and that kind of thing. And then it took on these contours of just being a whole, an entire person, like replacing a whole person with just this one piece of anatomy. Like we have a brain. Why couldn't we replace the person with that? I don't know. But anyway, and so that, that was kind of the rise of it, but it also presages a fall because you can't maintain that. You can't maintain an erection in place of a person that's not tenable. And I think that the fall comes with people accepting that that has happened. And instead of sending pictures of their faces to total strangers, they send pictures of their penises. What does that communicate? Really? You've reduced yourself to this body part and erased yourself entirely. That's the fall, I think. Yes. And you just said it, you know, you said we have brains. You also write that we should focus on the brain. Please explain it to us very clearly. Why do we need to focus on the brain instead of the penis? Because the brain is what makes us special. Our brains are us and we are, we are our brains. And like I said, it really is behaviorally. I think as a species, we are the most unconstrained. We have a, a, a rainbow of expression out there that we can engage in and enjoy and have fun with. And the only thing that constrains us are these perceptions, very human inclinations 
to putting things in big buckets, preferably no more than two, because then we start to get upset. And I think that we are self-constraining when we do that, not using these amazing brains that we've evolved. Yes. And of course, you have been studying and researching the brain also for a long time. And I want to dive into that. Superhumanize. Talking about solutions, um, are there some tools we could use um, in order to create a world that is less penis obsessed, uh, where the penis is not the centerpiece of discussion when we talk about masculinity? Yeah, there are a few things we could do. I do think that a lot of it starts with language. But, you know, let me back up first. Some of it just starts with state legislatures not trying to pass laws that say it's okay to check the genitalia of children before they can participate in sports. I think we could start with that. But just in terms of regular people, I think a lot of it has to do with language. When you when you default to language that makes assumptions about a person's sex in conjunction with their anatomy and that kind of thing, I think if we're careful about that and not defensive about it, that takes us a long way toward kind of a cultural shift into um, a broader expression and acceptance of our expression as a species. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is I kind of wrote this book for boys and men in a way almost as a defense of them because they're so, speaking of constraints, so constrained about, I mean, our culture constrains them so much and how they're allowed to express themselves. And, you know, they don't all have exactly the same impulses <laughs> to express themselves in exactly the same narrowly defined masculinity. There are so many masculinities. And I think that if we achieve a shift away from this narrow definition, we also achieve healthier openings for them to express themselves however they are without this pressure and constraint. I hope that we can do that. <laughs> I certainly hope so too. You know, for the love of men and for the love of humanity. Um, as far as, you know, children are concerned, you just brought children up. Uh, how can parents raising sons help reshape and rethink masculinity? That's a great question. I have three sons. And one of the things that I, they express themselves as they express themselves. But one of the things that I try to do is if there are things that turn up and if we're watching movies together or a show or something like that, and I see something that, you know, is sort of a representation of impossible masculinity, or that is, you know, kind of reenacting that in a way that seems to enforce its necessity, I'll have a discussion with them about it and be open about it. I'll also be extremely open about the fact that people who identify as women also can express masculinity in ways that are associated very conventionally with men, that there's a mix out there and they need to embrace that. Yes, absolutely. And another thing, of course, that puts great pressure on a, a lot of boys and men is this, uh, we discuss it in jest very often, uh, but the discussion of size, uh, which also can of course be extremely detrimental from your research. What was your takeaway with regards to the size um, of the penis? We don't have a super large penis relative to a lot of other animals, no matter kind of how you look at it or how you gauge it relative to our body size or, you know, our, the size of our testes, et cetera. We're in a 22 way tie or something with 
with other primates, when they ask women who have sex with men or people who have sex with people with penises, um, you know, what do you prefer? The, the length is just not, doesn't come out as relevant for even half the respondents. Um, and the other thing is, is that we reinforce this on all sides in society. I know that people have been talking about a sort of like a conservative attitude about what defines a man and what masculinity is but people i think who view themselves as progressive buy into this as well they'll say for example if a man walks into a starbucks carrying an ar-15 to buy a cup of coffee they'll say small dick energy what did they do they've reduced that person whose behavior is explainable with you know in, in a fairly complex psychological way I'm not excusing it by any stretch, but it is explicable and it's not about penis size. They're reducing that person to a penis and then they're trying to make fun of their penis size. This does no one any favors on any side. And it sends a message to anybody within hearing, including if they have children, that this matters and it's important and it's something to make fun of if you don't measure up. Yes, this is something really, really important. You've said there, I think a lot of people fall into that trap and it's easy to fall into it of course um, yes what's really really important is our brain it is also i like to say the largest erogenous zone and to know how to use it is probably the most important thing also with regards uh to intimacy and good sex and I personally am very excited about your next book, which comes out this December. So we still have a little time and I do want to catch up with you once it is out, but it's all about building a better brain. Um, and it's called The Tailored Brain from Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, a user's guide to feeling better and thinking smarter. Can, can you let us know a little bit about that and give us a little tease? Sure, I'd be happy to. I have not exactly refined my elevator <laughs> pitch for this one, so but bear with me. The, the the centerpiece of the book is that when we seek to do things to quote unquote make our brains better, we often are focused only on ourselves when we do that, and we exclude the the reality that we are not just a brain, but we are brains collectively because we are such a social species. That's how we were. That's how we evolved, and that's how we continue to interact. I think we've learned that a lot over the last year, probably with some of the isolation we've experienced. And so I break the book down into different kinds of what I call cognition, social cognition, global, creative, mood, stress. What I emphasize is, yes, I do look at ketamine and I do look at things like you know, microdosing and that kind of thing. But I emphasize that our interactions with each other and what we bring to them the openness that we have if we approach things non-judgmentally, if we develop the empathy cognition and that kind of thing, we improve lots of brains besides our own when we do that. But we also still manage to improve our own, which has a lot of utility all around too. Yes, I subscribe to that too. I like to describe it as, you know, uh, you uplift one person. And even if it's yourself, you uplift yourself, you uplift the rest of humanity. And for me, that's always something I've been very, very passionate about. Uh, the more the individual comes into balance, the better decisions we make for our immediate close circle, family and friends, but also for the larger human family. And then, of course, also for this beautiful planet we all share. And yes, uh, um, optimizing our brains, balancing our brains is a key component 
of uplifting humanity. So I'm very, very eager to read that book. Um, Emily, another question that I ask uh, the guests on this podcast is their personal practices that have elevated their lives mentally, physically, or spiritually. Do you have something that's an important practice to you and that you could share with us? Sure. Um, one of my most important ones is the daily walk with my partner. That is, as a friend of mine once put it, non-negotiable. And it's not for the physical activity alone, although I will say I did land on that pretty much helps almost everything, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> it's just not just making that up. It's that walk. And, and that's another social aspect. Um, you're offloading some of your cognitive load. If you can walk with somebody and kind of share your day and, you know, go through the good thing that happened, the bad thing that happened, whatever it is, and, and bear a load, you know, have load bearing between two people instead of just yourself. And it has a whole lot of utility. So that walk is largely non-negotiable. That's great. And I have actually not thought about it with regards to basically this cognitive unloading. That's very interesting. Well, I look forward to learning a lot more about the brain with your next book and everybody who wants to learn more about uh, the penis. I highly recommend your fantastic book, Fallacy. For people who want to learn more about you or reach out, where can they find you, Emily? Great. They can find me on Twitter at EJ Willingham is my Twitter handle. That's probably the easiest way. Excellent. Emily, I really loved having you as a guest. This was a fascinating discussion. Um, I'm very grateful you took your time. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 